Welcome to the Fight Lawyer Podcast, where we discuss combat sports and the law. Our guest today is former UFC title contender and Bellator welterweight, John Fitch. John, thanks so much for taking the time to do this. Thanks for having me, man. It's good to be here. So why don't we begin with your wrestling career at Purdue? How important is wrestling to one's development as an MMA fighter? Um, I think that uh, especially collegiate, like folk-style wrestling is very important for MMA fighting because, um, like, you know, freestyle and Greco-Roman, uh, takedowns are very important, but uh, the control aspect isn't there in the same, same regards because they're, they're looking to just turn their opponent uh, for uh, exposing their back to the mat or, or, or pinning them. Um, and there's, there's not as much reward based on, on writing uh, a person out and controlling a person as there is in folk style or, or collegiate wrestling. So I think, I think uh, guys that have a strong uh, American collegiate wrestling background have uh, a, a really good advantage in uh, um, that aspect, that top control and being able to control, um, control the grappling aspect um, rather than just, just being able to score. So, after an impressive collegiate uh, wrestling career at Purdue, you got into MMA. How did you know that was your calling? Um, I kind of I didn't. I kind of stumbled into it a little bit. I watched uh, some early UFCs back like, in the early 90s um, with some friends, but then I, I never really followed that much into it. I never followed it online when it came off of pay-per-views or anything like that. Uh, it wasn't until I got to Purdue University that my... One of my assistant coaches, Tom Erickson, was currently fighting, and uh, he was fighting for Pride at the time when uh, I got to Purdue. And it wasn't something I'd even considered doing yet, but he was having guys come to Purdue to train with him for wrestling. So, like Mark Coleman and Gary Goodrich, I think Ian, Ian Freeman and some other guys had come, Wes Sims, some other guys had come to Purdue uh, to wrestle around with us in the wrestling room. And and I would just take that opportunity to um, get in an extra workout as an extra way, a way to get some extra sweat in and, and, and mess around. And, uh, you know, I was starving to get better as a wrestler. So any opportunity I could get in, in the wrestling room to learn technique, I, I was going to be there. You know, they could have been teaching women self-defense and I would have volunteered just so I could go and learn more technique just because I, I felt like I was, I was behind the curve uh, of a lot of guys technique-wise when, uh, when I got to school. But um, when, when I finished uh, student teaching my senior year, um, or while I was going through the process of student teaching that year, I was thinking that I really didn't want to do that job. <laughs> I was like, this is terrible. I was like, I can't believe they let me get through this many years of school before they let me student teach and go into a classroom and realize that I don't want to do this. Um, it's too late to switch my major, so I, I started thinking of other ways to to make money or whatever. So Tom, Tom and Gary and and Mark Coleman always had these amazing stories about traveling and going to different countries and fighting, and it, it was like it's not like a movie, you know? It was like Bloodsport or some other kind of awesome um, a video game or something, you know? And they were making really good money. So to me, I was like, okay, well, I can either um, go the teaching route or I can I try this fighting thing. I was also, I was also thinking about maybe trying to make a, 
a wrestling uh, national team or, or Olympic team or something like that. I felt like I wasn't done competing yet. I just, I just started to get good at wrestling, you know, my, my junior year of wrestling. So, um, I just wanted to kind of test myself and I didn't have student loans to pay off. I had one scholarships and I was in an okay place financially to where there wasn't pressure for me to start uh, a real job yet. And I also won a scholarship called the Red Mackey Award, which gave me a, uh, a year of grad school paid for. So it paid for my, my tuition and it gave me $3,000 room and board. So I was set for the, uh, the, the, for the year. So I didn't have to worry about work and uh, I didn't have to worry about, you know, paying for the classes. I just had to go to class and get the grades. I took a low class load. I student taught and uh, right, I, I was a volunteer uh, coach for the wrestling team. So I had, you know, workouts, workout rooms and everything. So I just kind of was moonlighting as the fighter at first and to see if I liked it or what I wanted to do or if it was a viable career choice. And after, after, you know, less than a year of doing it, I got fell in love with it. I got hooked and then I started making plans to move to uh, California and, you know, follow my, my crazy dreams. And prior to making it to the UFC, you fought for some smaller promotions. How'd that transition in 2005 take place? Um, I mean, yeah, the, uh, it was the wild west before a lot of the regulators, a lot of states got regulated, you know, um, I fought a number of times, you know, I, I don't know if I ever signed a contract before I got to the UFC. I had like 14 to 16 fights, something like that before I got into the UFC. And, and, and there was type of things there are handshake deals or something you'd talk on the phone. There are times where we would just drive to uh, a state that had an event going on and we'd see, we'd show up and see if we could get on the card, not knowing, you know, if they had an opponent for us at all or, or how much we'd get paid. Um, not, not even seeing the other guy weigh in. You know, these are all like common things that happened for us. The, uh, the UFC fight happened when uh, they had uh, somebody got injured and was pulling out of a fight and they needed a, a, a replacement. It was like six weeks out or something. So I took the fight at 185 instead of 170 just so I could get in and, and get my foot in the door. It was a one-fight contract. And I fought an undefeated guy uh, who was really tough, and I think they were expecting that guy to win. And I, I beat him pretty handedly and uh, got myself another another contract. And you went on a long eight-fight win streak. You ultimately get GSP for the title at UFC 87. Why do you think it took so long for you to get there? Um, yeah, because uh, it's, I mean, it's not a real sport. <laughs> The UFC is not really, it's, it's, the competitions are real competitions, but there's no sports structure at all. So they already had a guy who fought and won fights that used a lot of grappling and ground and pound. That was GSP. So they didn't need another one. Um, so for what they're doing, they're, they're trying to produce like a television show and they have certain characters they want to cast and they just didn't have room for me. They already had my character. So they had, they, you know, kept me off of, uh, you know, some of the, some of the bigger cards and they kept me from fighting other guys that they wanted to push and promote. I also, also was not, uh, easy to work with in the sense that I knew that we were being exploited and underpaid and, uh, the contracts weren't right. And uh, I would bring these things up and I, I kind of would be punished for doing so. And looking back at it now, what would you have done differently in that fight or even during the fight or maybe in preparation for the fight? 
Uh, well, GSC fight, I was a little bit. Um, my defense wasn't wasn't tight. It wasn't tight enough uh, for that fight. Everything else was pretty good. Um, my wrestling defense was good. My my wrestling was good. Um, but I, I threw a lazy leg kick, caught a big right hand. I threw a lead uh, hook uh, and dropped it and caught another lead right hand in the third. So, you know, there were some, there were some uh, technical defensive things that I did pretty badly that led to excessive damage. And uh, the rest of the fight, other than those couple big shots, was, was, was pretty even. So um, I think once I tightened my, my defense up, you know, I was, I was much more ready for a rematch. I just wasn't given it. And after the fight, you engage in a bit of a battle with the UFC regarding their rights to your name, your likeness. Why was waging that war so important to you? Because uh, it was just, it was not a good deal. It wasn't a good, for me, good deal for me, good deal for anybody. You're taking our image and likeness forever for no money, like zero compensation. Like nobody should do that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't advise anybody to ever accept that type of a deal. <laughs> you have no idea what the next five or 10 years will bring. Um, you know, that was just, it's part of their um, monopsony uh, process that they, they've done to help monopolize the sport owning people's image and likenesses. Uh, they do that because you are less valuable to other promoters once they let go of you because the UFC owns all your, all your stuff. So like for another promoter to pay money for you and not be able to promote you with the tools of using your image and likeness in a video game or, uh, or other merchandising type deals, it, it devalues you a great deal. And it gives them, it gives UFC more control over your entity forever do you think that ordeal was maybe in hindsight a sign of things to come as it relates to other issues in terms of your release from the ufc some of the legal battles that followed um yes it was definitely because um that whole thing was was made public by them um i never went to any press i never told anybody nothing i said i never said anything it, was, it all transpired within about a day a little over 24 hours probably and it was them pushing it, and they purposely pushed that 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 out there to scare everybody else because they were getting a lot of pushback on people signing the merchandising and video game rights agreements. People weren't signing them. People didn't want to give it up. They knew that it was it was not a good deal, and they didn't want to sign it. And um, nobody was saying anything publicly about it, but nobody wanted to sign. There are a lot of guys who were who were refraining from it. So they, the UFC specifically took me to use me as an example. They fired me. You know, I was somebody who just came off of, of eight wins and then a loss to the champ and a decision that got me a fight of the night bonus, right? So my popularity was at a peak, and they chose to fire me on purpose in order to scare everybody else. Um, after they fired me and that, that daily ordeal took place, they threatened to fire all of my teammates. They threatened to fire uh, everybody who was represented by my management. Uh, and never allowed them to fight in the UFC again. Uh, people saw that. People understood that, you know, if they didn't sign the agreements, then they, they, it could happen to them too. And that, that was what the UFC was purposely trying to do with that situation. All of that situation could have been handled with phone calls and meetings. Like everything could have been put behind closed doors and no one ever would have had to have heard about it. But they purposely made efforts to make sure everybody knew about it because they were using it to leverage the position and scare people into signing contracts. 
but he ultimately did make it back after that fight, going another nice win streak, and you get BJ Penn in Australia. What was different about fighting BJ Penn at the time? Um, I think my mental state was not there because um, I'd been getting so much pushback from the UFC and having so many issues with them that uh, I wasn't thinking real clearly. I, I switched to a vegan diet, which was not smart. Uh, I lost I lost a good deal of muscle uh, and um, began getting injured quite often. And um, yeah, I just uh, I think that when I fought Tiago Alves the second time, I was supposed to be for a title shot. And when they took that away from me, I think um, I think I, it hit me harder than I, I wanted to to admit at the time, and it, it kind of shook me and and. Uh, it made me think, you know, what's the point? Why am I doing this? What am I doing all this work for if, if this is just some kind of game show where they, they pick who gets to go whenever and, and you don't really earn anything. You're just granted opportunities. Like, that's not the point of sports. Like, in a sport, you get what you earn. And um, it's not about the opportunity. I mean, you know, the, the promoter is the one, in my opinion, who has the opportunity to be associated with the athlete. The athlete's the one who does the work. The athlete's the one who people pay to see. And as you mentioned earlier, ultimately released after a single loss, which a decision that was highly questionable by anybody outside of the company. Why do you think you were released? Oh, I mean, it's no secret. Um, we, I had been threatened by Joe Silva a number of times. Um, uh, the last negotiation, contract negotiation, um, he said, you know, he finally said, fine, we'll... we'll We'll, we'll pay him this money, but as soon as he loses, we're going to cut him and sign him back for half as much. So we, we knew that the first time I lost, I, I was probably going to get cut. I, I was really surprised that I didn't get let go after the Johnny Hendricks fight. But I think um, their thinking was, uh, after I lost the Hendricks fight, you know, they were going to set me up to lose a fight in Brazil there. So, so I was happy to put my foot in their ass. And after your UFC career, you signed with the World Series of Fighting. How'd that happen? Why'd you make that decision? Honestly, at that time period, there really wasn't anywhere else to go. Um, I didn't want to deal with Bjorn Rebney or, or what was going on at Bellator at the time. It didn't, it didn't look like a good place to be. Um, and then there wasn't much else, anywhere else to go. You could try places overseas, but nothing's guaranteed on pay. You don't know consistency. And then nobody's going to see you fight. It's not like those fights are, are aired in American television anywhere. So it was just, there really wasn't anywhere else to go. What was different about fighting for a small organization after all those years in the big show? Um, everybody worked really hard. And the atmosphere was really uh, friendly. And everybody was trying to work together and put on a great show. And they put on a lot of really great shows. But they, they didn't have some of the um, intangible things, you know, like, you know, setting plane tickets up early, getting, getting papers and, and, and stuff sent out on time, um, you know, promoting the fight and getting the venues enough time in advance to pr- properly promote it and make sure everybody knew about it. There's just, just little, little things that, uh, you know, I think take, take that you learn over time that, that, that they hadn't, didn't have right away. Uh, they're getting better and better as time goes on. But they've also had a lot of internal mix-ups and shifts, uh, too. So they kind of have to keep starting over at zero um, a number of times. 
Now, presumably, one would think that fighters generally make more money in the UFC. But with all the sponsorship restrictions, things of that nature, is that true? What was, you know, is there a money disparity at all? Yeah, there is. Um, there are some guys who make a little bit more uh, money fighting for a different organization, but ultimately uh, the fighters in the UFC are paid uh, substantially more money than, than, than fighters elsewhere. Uh, that's, that's pretty easy to understand once you understand that the UFC controls at least 90% of the market. So, I mean, you, every other promotion in the world is fighting for the last 10% or less than 10%. So there's not a ton of money to go around other places. I think somebody estimated that uh, the UFC makes 30 to 40 times more than Bellator, which is the the next biggest organization worldwide. So um, there is definitely pay disparity between UFC fighters and uh, the rest. And we spoke to Kung Lee a little while ago. He discussed at length the lawsuit in which you guys are involved against the UFC. Why did you decide to join that effort? Um, because like it's it's pretty obvious uh, what they're doing, and we have antitrust laws um, on the books already in this country. Uh, you know, we're a capitalist country, and capitalism is 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 the best financial system we have. But you do need uh, you need, do need uh, antitrust laws. You need to enforce the antitrust laws that exist in order for things to operate smoothly because monopolies are inherently evil. They, they are bad for uh, the industries that they monopolize. They're bad for uh, the products. They're bad for the consumer um, and bad for labor. So, so you need direct competition and the UFC does not have any direct competition. And in the lawsuit, we are, we're arguing and we are positive that, their, their efforts to become a monopoly were not accidental. There's two ways to become a monopolistic entity, and that is through fault or through folly, right? And um, this is definitely something we think is, is, is their fault. They purposely did this. They, they purposely bought other organizations to buy their titles and buy their top talent in order to shut them down to eliminate competition. Um, they use, you know, fear and scare tactics to keep people from standing up and fighting back. And um, they use, you know, these contracts that are never ending and binding and devalue you outside of their organization. So, like, they're purposely doing a lot of things to control and monopolize the market. So, you know, it was, it was pretty easy to, to join on with this, in, in my opinion. I, you know, I'm, I'm, a person, I'm a confident person. I'm not worried about making money. I'll, I'll make money. I'm talented. I'm smart. I'll figure it out, you know. I think a lot of guys are scared uh, to stand up and speak out because they don't know how else to make money. And they'd rather make some breadcrumbs than make nothing. And what do you say to those folks who say, look, as you just mentioned, this is capitalism at its best. There were other companies, they had money, they weren't as good, UFC beat them, and now you got to deal with the consequences. Well, I mean, did they, did they beat them or, or did they illegally buy some of them out? <laughs> uh, you can't, you can't, um, by law, you can't buy a company just to shut it down. So the fact that they did that, uh, you know, it's not the same as, as, you know, oh, we just put them out of business and they folded. It. It, it's not at all the same. And what stage is the case in now? What's the timeline of things to come from a legal perspective? Um, we're waiting on class certification. 
and I'm not sure exactly the time on that. Uh, I think they filed some kind of extension, but I, I think we should know in June, I think. But that's I'm kind of guessing. And what's the ultimate goal here? How important is this, not just for you and, and Kung and Nate Quarry, but really all the other fighters uh, that are set to fight for years to come? Uh, I think it's, it's, it's a very important it's to save the sport. If we don't save the sport, it will, it will die. It will become something that's mutated and not recognizable, and it, it will not be as good. It will not reach the potentials that it could. Um, the ultimate goal of the, the, the lawsuit is to prevent them from continuing in the same business practices, to stop them from using uh, the crappy contracts and, and everything else that they're doing, uh, to, to force them to change the way they do business. Because if they don't change the way they do business, a new class of fighters can file suit again. And what do you say to those guys that say, look, they draw the parallel to WWE, who has in theory, could be argued to have done the same thing, and they bought out other companies. How is that different? Uh, that's not a sport. One is a production for entertainment, and one is a sport. And you cannot, uh, you cannot exploit athletes on that level. You can't do that. Um, it's, it's a different thing. You cannot, you cannot use uh, WWE, which is a production, which is a television show, basically, uh, predetermined outcomes on their events. They write and know what they're doing before before they get there. Um, you cannot treat a television show the same way you treat a sport. There are rules about how sports are supposed to operate. And you cannot have things that exist that um, are unnecessary um, around competition. If, if it's something that exists and you don't need it for competition, it needs to be eliminated. And a lot of these controls and a lot of the... Uh, uh, the things that people are forced to do are unnecessary. And the purchase of the UFC for all that money some time ago by what is essentially an entertainment company, what impact do you yeah. think, what does it show the consumer as to which direction they're trying to take it? Uh, for one, I think they don't even understand sport at all. They, they, they totally misconceive what it is. that is. They're not thinking of us as athletes. They think we're actors and actresses. And we can just be cast in roles and be made to fight. And um, that's wrong. Like, that takes all the power away from fighters who are independent contractors. And um, we need to get uh, uh, establish ourselves as independent contractors. We need to retain our titles. We need to retain our rank regardless of what promotion we fight for. How useful, and I asked some fighters this, and some have different opinions than others, would a union be in the sport? Um, under a, a one-entity monopoly, not at all. It wouldn't do anything. A CBA would, uh, would solidify the, the, the monopoly and would end any chances of um, creating a free market. You, you would only, at, at the most, top out at 25% of gross revenues. They probably wouldn't even give up that much. Um, the idea that they would, the, the athletes would have any type of leverage at all is comical. Um, they they could just get rid of everybody in a, they, and then and uh, who was it? Uh, Demetrius Johnson, right? When he tried to leverage his position, like one of the greatest champions they've ever had, tried to get a better deal. What was their answer to him? Okay, take sign this, take us and sign this, or we're going to get rid of your whole weight class. And then to embarrass him, they, they offered it up on the, uh, 
they offered it up for the highest bidder. And then they said, oh, well, nobody even bid it on it. See, that's how worthless your weight class is. And how is any group of people going to negotiate or have any kind of leverage with that entity if that's the type of power they have? They can do that to their greatest champion. Um, a CBA will only work if, if the athletes have the ability to sue. If they form a CBA under a single entity monopoly, they lose that ability to sue because you cannot be sued for um, uh, conspiracy or whatever to, uh, or collusion to suppress wages because you're only one entity. You can't collude with somebody else if you're only one person. It only works in a league format, like in uh, Major League Baseball. That's why I work with Major League Baseball, because you have the ability to threaten the lawsuit. If you don't have a legal frame uh, to back them up against, you have nothing. Like just threatening to, to strike or walk out isn't going to do anything if you don't have the ability to press them up against some legal uh, structure like uh, the Ali Act or, or being able to sue um, about repression of suppression of, 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 of uh, wages or uh, any type of other uh, um, anti, uh, antitrust type of infractions. Now, a few weeks ago, news broke you're signing with Bellator. Why did you decide to go that route at this point in your career? Um, I, I like the idea of getting to fight in San Jose. Uh, they're a good promotion. I like Scott Coker. Uh, the money was satisfactory. And, um, you know, I, I think I can, uh, I can send myself uh, off, um, you know, finish my career out in a strong way for, for a strong organization um, in, my, in my hometown. And there's a lot of really tough welterweights to fight excuse me, in, in Bellator. And I like the idea of getting the op- opportunity to compete against those guys. And you're still obviously one of the best in the game. After you, you're done fighting, do you expect to coach or do you expect to undertake some other endeavor with an MMA? I'm uh, doing a little bit of coaching now. Uh, I have a few guys that I work with, um, younger guys that I work with. And then, um, you know, I do, I do seminars and small groups and stuff like that. So, so I travel and I and I teach when I can. Uh, people can book me through my uh, through my uh, Facebook or through my website, JohnFitch.net. But um, yeah, I'm uh, I'm uh, I love teaching. I like working with people. So that's a very strong possibility for for my future. Understood, John. Where can people go to find out more about you? How to get in touch with you? How to book you? Yeah, the, uh, my, my website, johnfish.net, um, I just did, revamped it. It's up and running now. I've got a blog series running on there called Failing Upward or Death by Ego. I've got uh, links to my YouTube and all my other social media stuff on there. So people check out johnfish.net. They'll get to see uh, quite a bit of stuff. And Bellator is doing this heavyweight tournament. How important is it to bring back some of those tournaments to restrict some of these issues that you've been talking about throughout the interview about picking and choosing guys for title shots and rankings and things of that nature? Uh, you know, I think tournaments sometimes uh, can be good. You know, it shouldn't affect who the, the title holder is. It should be a separate Grand Prix-type title um, that maybe can, can be given, you know, number one contender can be given that or whatever. But I think uh, they can be good sometimes, time to time, uh, because fans 
have something to follow along with and they have a certain type of structure to follow along with. And I think that's, I think that's a good thing. Understood. John, once again, thanks so much for taking the time to do this. Hey, no problem, man. Good talking to you. And that's our interview with John Fitch. I hope you had a good time. Thanks so much for listening. My name's Dimitri Shaknovich. If you want to learn more about me, please visit www.dshacklaw.com. And this is the Fight Lawyer Podcast. Until next time, folks.